has as his or her life goal one simple thing. That is to reach the end of our life, to stand before Jesus and hear these words, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's what we live for. As followers of Christ, we, we live in this tunnel of life for that day, for that one sentence to be told toward us. We long to be faithful towards the Lord during our time on earth. We long to please our Savior so that at that day we can receive our, our full reward. Now, some do well in that and others do not. For instance, I think about the Apostle Paul. At the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have what? Kept the faith. And then he says the very next verse. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. He's anticipating that, that crown of righteousness that he'll get, as, as was everybody's longing for that crown as well. It's for those who have fought the good fight, finished the course, and kept the faith. Paul longed for that day and received a, a good, a full reward, doing well. Solomon didn't do so well. God granted him more wisdom than any man ever possessed. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And where did his wisdom lead him? Not to a good place. He squandered his place of privilege by pursuing the pleasures of the world. He pursued the gold, the glory, and the girls. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. As 1 Kings 11 says, he commanded him concerning these things that he should not go after other gods, But Solomon did not keep what the Lord had commanded him. And when Solomon stood before the Lord, he did not hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. His life in many ways, you could could, uh, call it a disappointment with Solomon. Paul, right, was a a life encouragement and Solomon's a life of disappointment. And these examples really beg the question, what, what sort of life are you running Are you running well? Will you hear those words? Or is your life going to be a a disappointment? Will the Lord be disappointed to you? Well, our our text this morning really brings up these questions. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 3 John, the, the shortest book in all the Bible. So kids, if ever your parents tell you, I want you to go and read a book of the Bible, 3 John is where you go. 219 words. Though it has more verses in the English text than 2 John does, it has fewer words and it is smaller than all the others. And really the the key of application to our text this morning really comes from verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. We will see 
example of evil and we will see examples of good. And the call for us this morning is to, is to follow the good and discard the evil. Now, John is, third John is written by the Apostle John. Again, who simply defines himself or calls himself the elder. So I, like in Second John, he called that. The elder to the elect lady. And, and last week, as I, maybe you remember, as I said, the elder comes nicely into our English as what? The, help me now. The old man. Nice, thank you, Tina. The old man is who he's writing from. And John writes this little postcard to a man named Gaius. It's a real common name in the ancient world, like Greg or, or Peter, right, or, or Chris or Scott. So we don't, we don't know if the four other biblical references using this name was actually him or not. I think there's reason why it's probable that some of them are at least, but we're not certain. And I'd hate to take something that wasn't even true of Gaius and bring it in, so we're going to basically ignore those texts, leave them alone, as it would all be speculation, but there's enough here in Third John for us to, to know, to get a glimpse of a faithful man we're called to imitate. And I know that Gaius received the full reward for his labors. In fact, even as John writes in Second John verse 7, right, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And guess won that full reward for sure. And as I read this little book, I want you to listen to the name of for, for two other men. We talked about Gaius, but there are two other mentioned here. And as John speaks of them, just, just think of yourselves. Okay, so, so what kind of reward have they received? Are they a good example for us to follow, verse 11? Are they an evil example for us to refuse and shun? The elder... To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when your brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, stop those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Well, let's dig into the text by looking at the first person that John mentions his name is Gaius. I've already mentioned him. John obviously loved this man, the elder, 
to the beloved Gaius, that is to the loved Gaius, whom I love in truth. It's very similar to Second John verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. The idea here is that John's love for Gaius comes because of the truth. John believed the truth, and Gaius believed the truth, and as they both believed the same thing, there created a bond in and with each other. And I tell you, that happens all the time in the natural realm. When, when one person believes one thing, another person believes a similar thing, there's a bond that forms. So it is political season, right? And there are five candidates left for the President of the United States, one of these five, in all likelihood, will be the next president. And when someone says, puts forth and says, like, I like Hillary Clinton. And if someone else likes Hillary Clinton, then, then they both go there and, they, and there's a common bond. Or, or I like Donald Trump. Or Cruz. Or, or Kasich. Or, I, I like these guys. So, and, and, and if you match, there is like a, a common pull together. There's a, there's a common bond because you're on the same team. And you're pulling the same way. And you're gonna, you're gonna vote the same way. And you're, you're united in the same cause. And that, in the natural political realm, is what John says in the spiritual realm. John says, Gaius, you believe the truth. I believe the truth. We're on the same team. We're united around the truth, right? We, the truth of the gospel, that we have seen our sin. And that we've acknowledged our need for a savior. And we've believed that Jesus Christ is the one who's come in the flesh to save us from our sins. And now we trusted that and now we are walking in the truth. Well, how did John know that Gaius believed the truth and was walking in the truth? Well, it's because this report that John received about him. You can look at verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. So apparently John was there and some brothers came and testified to Gaius that he, as it says there in verse 3, they testified to his truth and his truth is the truth and he was walking in the truth. That is, he was living the truth out in his heart and in his life. And there was a bond between Gaius and John. There's a bond that forms literally all over the world. When Ivan and I take our trip to India here in two and a half weeks, we will meet people that we barely know. In some cases, I'm sure I'm going to meet new Christians we haven't even known before. And have all these, I've trained with these pastors before and they're going to come and bring their wives. All these wives will be new to me. I won't know them. But a bond of love will be formed because it's a bond based upon truth. And this bond based upon the truth of the gospel goes far deeper than any political bond ever goes because this bond is for eternity. And the longer and deeper you know someone in the truth, that love only deepens. That's why John wasn't content with a letter like, like Third John. He wanted to come and be with Gaius. That's why he said in verse 13, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. I, I, I want to be with you. I, I want to, to come to you because face to face is better than a letter. And face to face is better than an email. And face to face is better than a phone call. And face to face is better than Skype. 
face to face is the best. But in the meantime, this friends, this this letter will be the best. But he even he, he tries to just make do what he can. He says, verse 15, peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. So you see, John has got his friends and he's writing to you, to all their friends. And, and, and Gaius' friends are all writing back. So it's kind of like trying to say, hey, say hi to everybody. Just trying to make that effort, whatever can of paper. But in his absence, this letter would suffice. But he could pray for him, like verse 2. That's how he prays for him. John's prayer is this, beloved. Again, calling him that love, dear term. He says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This is one of those rare places in the New Testament where physical health is prayed for. Because most of the prayers in the New Testament are for spiritual well-being. Like Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, I pray for God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, right? May your, may your spirit grow in the knowledge of Him. Or, like Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being, right? There's a, there's a concern in the New Testament strongly for just the inner being and the mind to be sanctified and set right and be strengthened as Paul said in Philippians 1.9, I pray for your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There's a relational prayer. But here we see John praying for physical well-being. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. But, but I hope you notice that John just didn't ditch the spiritual. He, in fact, one of the things he did here was that he, he elevated spiritual well-being and and physical well-being, kind of, kind of the same. Essentially, he says this, I pray that your physical well-being may match your spiritual well-being. That's what he's saying, right? As it goes well with your soul. How would you like that prayer to be prayed for you? I pray that just as you are healthy spiritually, you'll be healthy physically. Or, or, or put it another way, God, as so-and-so is, is healthy spiritually, grant their bodies to be likewise healthy. Now, for some of you, that might be good news. Body is failing, but your spirit is strong. Older saints, this is where, this is where you are. Older saints kind of sit, sit over here. Right? You've, you've walked with the Lord for years, your spirit is more alive than ever, and yet your bodies are, are decaying. And you're rejoicing in the Lord that, yes, that's what I want to be. But for some of you, this might be a frightful thing because truth be known, things aren't so well with your soul. And you don't want things to be that bad with your body either. And I just say, if that's you, may God grant you repentance to seek wellness with your soul. Well, do you notice the extent of John's joy and this is really the, the thing in Third John that I've thought about many times, meditated on. For I rejoice greatly, verse 3, when your brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. And I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. When he heard of Gaius and he was walking in the truth, he said, I have rejoiced greatly. That's not like golf clap, okay? Okay, maybe I'm watching the Masters recently, right? Someone makes a putt. and Okay, everyone, let's, let's golf clap, okay? Right? That's, that's not what rejoicing greatly is. You know what rejoicing greatly is? 
That's the NCAA tournament when Chris Jenkins made that three-pointer when the, the timer went out, right? And, and it says, the custom at our house is that David and I are sitting on the couch and everyone else is kind of all around and we're watching. And I remember you were in the kitchen, all of a sudden we're watching and both of us go, what do we do, David? Yeah! <laughs> you know? Okay, you guys ready? Let's, let's rejoice greatly. You ready? Okay, just picture the picture up. Okay, ready? Go! Yeah! Yeah! That's what he's talking about here. Gaius is walking in the truth and John rejoiced greatly. And in fact, even he's superlative here. He said, I have no greater joy. Like, like you, you put, you put my joy here, like, like my top joy. What is it that makes you the happiest of anything? No greater joy, he says this, than to hear of my spiritual children are walking in the truth. And I'll just say from time to time, I have the, the opportunity to spend some Sometimes visiting and reacquainting with uh, fellow believers who have been in our ministry before or been in some kind of ministry or some kind of Bible study that they had in, in years past, perhaps. And uh, maybe they've moved away. And kind of like coming back through town, and they say, oh, Steve, we're passing through town. You want to you wanna talk? We'd love to. And sometimes we have people over for, for lunch or something like that. And I... I have the privilege of, of talking with these people and it is my joy. I would really say my greatest joy when I hear that things are going very well spiritually with them. I hear about the, the church they're involved in, the churches they're involved in or the way they're growing or the, the books they've read or the, 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 the opportunities they've had to serve Christ. And, and I'll just say, here's, here's why I rejoice so, so greatly with them is because I see their, tra- their faith is true. It's authentic, it's not dependent upon me, and I know that it's going to last to eternity. And I just, you know, I, I rejoice with that. And I would say likewise, that when I meet people or see people who perhaps have been in some ministry context and, and they've left and maybe they come back or maybe you see something, oftentimes those people don't want to come back and have lunch with you. They want to come back and say, well, I don't, I don't have a care for God anymore at all. Or... You know, that sometimes you see them or hear about them and they're not doing well. I would say that that's a disappointment as well. In fact, maybe even it's one of the greatest disappointments of pain of seeing people who you sought to influence spiritually and showed some promise. And then when they left, they, they faded away. Maybe it was dependent upon me. Maybe they were interested in church things because of me. Maybe, um, but whatever, it wasn't, it wasn't real. They went out from us. Because they were not of us. If they had been with us, of us, they would have remained with us. And uh, people go out and that's a, that's a sad thing. And I just say this, that what's true about disciples is true about physical sons and daughters as well. And I know this is a theme of mine in terms of a theme of my parenting. In fact, a, 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 if you say, okay, Steve, what is, a, what is a key verse, the one key verse that guides my parenting? It's this verse right here. It's 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so parents, I just say, take this to heart as you think about your children and how you're raising your children. Your greatest joy will be when they are doing spiritually well. So if that means your greatest joy is when they're doing spiritually well, what should you be aiming for? For your children, aim for their spiritual wellness. And as they are spiritually well, then it will give you the, the greatest joy. And, and, and sadly, though, um, I hear many parents just talk on a worldly level about 
their children, finding joy in other things rather than finding joy in what John is, is saying here. Right? Say a parent and ask, how's your children doing? Someone says, oh, they're doing great. My oldest daughter, right? She, she's graduated from college a few years ago, landed a great job in the city. She, she's paid so well, she's paid off her student loans and has even bought her own apartment, a condo right there in the city, right in a, a big, huge building. And, and she's so happy. There's always so much to do. I mean, she's got season tickets, a local sports team that she goes out with her friends, and she, she loves the opera, and she's just so full of life. And my, my son's doing great as well. You know, he didn't go to college, but, but he landed a, a great job that takes him all over the world. He's a sales rep for a, for a great company that takes care of him. I think last week, I, he said he was in China, and he was in Japan the, the week before, I, I think. And, you know, he's hardly around, but he loves to travel. He's really good. He's getting lots of sales. And when he is around, he works, likes to work outside in this farmette that he bought just outside of town. And when he's back, he's so exhausted, he spends most of his time fishing in his little fishing pond where he can wind down, but wind down, but they're doing great. You hear what's lacking, right? It's a worldly joy that John knows not of. John's joy in Gaius is all wrapped up in spiritual prosperity. I rejoice greatly when I heard that you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that you're walking in the truth. And that's what Gaius was doing. He was walking in the truth. And how much better is this answer? My children, how are my children doing? Well, my oldest found a, a godly man who loves Christ. And, and they purchased a small building, a small house, rather, on the outskirts of town. It's, it's really all they could afford. It's, it's not big, but it's, it's near the church. The church building is there on the outskirts of town. In fact, all I hear about them when I talk with them, all I hear about is their church, their church, their church. They love the small group, which is involved with young marrieds, and, and they're finding help with their parenting. I'm always talking about the books they're reading and the things they're learning from the Bible. Um, they're finding just special joy in really thinking about how to nurture and admonish their children and raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And my, my oldest son is doing great. In fact, he's engaged to a girl right now. And uh, she's living with a pastor's family at, at church and just kind of being discipled by her a lot. And that means my son is, is over there at the pastor's house a lot, a lot of informal discipleship. In fact, he's, I've never seen him so excited about the Bible and about, about God and Christ and living for him. And, and, and you know, he, he, at work, there's some people who don't go to church but show him some spiritual interests. And, and my son is leading a, a, a lunchtime Bible study. Just, just talking about Jesus and the simple things of the faith. And he thinks some of them are softening to the gospel. And my children are doing well. I hope you can see the difference in focus and the difference in joy. And I know that some of you parents are experiencing the joy. And some of you parents are experiencing the anguish. I just want to pray for those experiencing the anguish. Let's pray. Father, I would pray right now for the, the wayward children, for the parents who know little of this dynamic. God, in some cases, God, perhaps some children are doing well and some are not doing well. But Father, I would pray God, for those children who have gone wayward. Um, Father, I pray that they would think about all that they've learned here at church. They would think about all they've learned and taught in the homes. God, of the, the Bible songs sung and the prayers prayed and the Bibles read at family worship and God, I've turned their back on that and Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts now. I pray you'd minister to, to parents dealing with those things and struggling with those things. 
And Father, for, for parents of younger children, I, I pray that they would really focus their attention and their heart upon, upon children walking joyfully in the truth. God, that they might be happy. God, that though their children may not be worldly, wealthy or successful, God, the, the child who is following after you is, is successful in any godly man's eyes. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help Give your comfort where it needs to be and, and give your joy where it should be. God, that we might really rejoice in the ways that our children are standing on our shoulders and going beyond us. God, may we rejoice in those things. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wrote in the Weekly Word this week uh, an article entitled The Dangers of First-Time Obedience. Now, it's kind of right down at the end and I'm not sure how many of you read it. I don't want to be discouraged, so I won't ask you how many of you read it. But I would encourage you to click on that link and read it. I mean, it'll take you all of five minutes, seven minutes to read it out loud. Don't pull it up on your phone right now. Okay, after you can look at it and read it. But it, it's about the dangers of first-time obedience. The first-time obedience must be what we all aim for our children. Colossians three eighteen. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. And if it says in all things, that means everything you say to them should be obeyed. However, there's a danger. There's a danger that when we aim for controlling our children. There's some people who would pride themselves, oh, first time obedience, my children obey. But actually, you're just controlling them, and you're bigger than them, and you're stronger than them. Or sometimes people say, oh, look at my children, they obey first time, because what good parent am I? And sometimes it's just a, an ego thing that you get first time obedience going with your, your kids. But listen, we need to aim that they obey our loving instructions, that they might learn to walk in the truth, that they might find joy in walking in the truth, so that when they leave our homes, they're walking in the truth. That's why I'm so encouraged by when people leave and they come back, they're still walking in the truth because it's not my influence, it's the Lord's influence. And when they're outside and they're walking in the truth, it's God's influence, not the parent's control. And sadly, many parents do a great job at first-time obedience when the kids are small. It's because they're controlling them. And then when kids have an opportunity, they rebel and, and turn aside. Listen, right? And I just say, you've got to le- lessen that up and soften it up so your commands at a young age become encouragements that you have far more influence than you have authority later on in life. And there's just a, a danger in that. But I would say, they, say, parents, teach your children to know the truth, to love the truth, and to enjoy the truth. Because that's what's going to keep them there. And then it is for your joy as you aim that, aim that way for your children. And, and I think here, even as Paul is praying for Gaius, this son in the faith who has given him such an encouragement, I encourage you to pray for your children. And you probably are, as, as we are. In fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with Yvonne about, like, about this. And, you know, it's not like we have a concerted effort, like we've got on our chalkboard or a whiteboard, Okay, did we pray for Krista today? Yep, prayed for her today. We pray for SR today. Yep, prayed for her. Pray for him. Did we pray? Yeah. We pray for Hannah today. Yep. And Stephanie. Yep. And David. Yep. It, we don't have any check, but we don't even think about that. But we, we're talking about it. And I don't think a day goes by, but that one of us in our presence are not praying 
for each and every one of our children by name. I mean, sometimes at the dinner table we're praying. Sometimes family worship we're praying. At night before de- bed, we're praying. And we're praying mostly for the spiritual well-being of our, of our children. As we're praying for them, actually subtly we're leading towards our joy. Just encourage you to pray for your children. And you, you have a, have a heart, compassion there. And I would encourage you, even now, just really thinking about this yesterday, I, I want to set an example before our family be praying for our children so that when our children are older and out, they know, mom and dad prayed for me today. And how do they know that? Well, because when I was around, they were praying for my older siblings every day. It just always happened. So let them know that you pray for them. One of the most powerful things in my life is my dad telling me, Steve, we pray for you every day. And I doubt it not. Just as a care and a love that we ought to have for our children as well. All right. Well, now we come to verse 5 and we see how it is exactly that Gaius is walking in the truth. And this is our lesson from Gaius, okay? Gaius, verses 1 through 8, he's a servant to the saints. There's my point. He's a servant to the saints. We should follow his example and seek to be servants. And his ministry is worthy to be followed. Verse 5. Beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So apparently there were these people, these I'd call them missionaries, who who went out and, and maybe they came from some other place, I'm not exactly sure, but they were with John and then, I'm sorry, with Gaius at the church there, and then they came back and they, they spoke to John about Gaius and how Gaius treated them, and maybe they're going back again, maybe they're bringing this letter, Second John. I, I, we don't exactly know, but we got some missionaries that had come to the church, and Gaius loved them and served them and helped them. We, we don't know what Gaius exactly did, but we know that his efforts were made known to John and to all the church. Verse 6 says this, that these brothers testified to your love for them, right, before the church. And perhaps what's so striking about this is that these men were strangers, right? These, these brothers, verse 5, strangers as they are. And he, and he helped them. Gaius didn't know them. They'd been sent, they came, and he still loved them, and he embraced them, and he helped them. In fact, this is true hospitality. The, the Greek word for hospitality comes from two, two words, philox and xenos. Philos means love, xenos means stranger. True hospitality is love of stranger. Okay? Hospitality, I mean, as, as good as this is, isn't having your friends over to your house. Hospitality is having stranger you don't know over to your house. That's what hospitality is about. And, and having people that you, that you help and you just love them and, and serve them. And, and that's what Gaius did. He, he helped them. Now, I don't think that they were total strangers. I think there was some kind of, sort of reputation that preceded them because the instruction to the elect lady in Second John 10 and 11 was, if anyone comes to you, does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him, takes part in his wicked works. There was something, they, they knew enough of these people's teaching and they talked to them and they, Gaius brought them into his house, helped them, loved them. And so I think there was this reputation that preceded them because John says, don't 
take in false teachers because you're going to share in their wicked works. But likewise, if you take in the good and the true, you will share in their works as well and be a faithful common laborer with the Lord together with them as you take part in their fruitful works. That's what David, that's what Gaius did. And by serving the saints, that's how he was walking in the truth. So you say, how does John know he's walking in the truth? Well, he served these saints. He was faithful there. And and John's counsel to Gaius was this, verse 6, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Okay, what that means, in a manner worthy of God, I think that means this, quote-unquote, to help them financially. I think that's what what that means there. I say that because that's what John explains. Verse 7, they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. These guys were going out in the world for the sake of the name. It's probably going out in the world with the gospel. They were probably missionaries, evangelists, going out into in the early first century, right? Nobody knew of Christ. I mean, it was sprinkling out, but, but it's because these people had to go out to tell people of Jesus for the very first time. And they determined that they're going to go to the Gentiles. These are not Jews. And they determined that they were not going to ask for any money. They weren't going to take any offering. And in fact, you almost get the sense if the Gentiles would say, oh, here, here, take this. They would even refuse, and they didn't want to take anything. In this way, they were acting like the Apostle Paul, who could have, but chose not to, so as not to distort or dilute or to um, put an obstacle for the gospel. John said, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 9, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we re- reap material things from you? And, and there's, there's the principle that... that you are served spiritually, it, it makes sense to then reap physically, materially. That's okay. That's how it works. And Paul continues, If others share this rightful claim, do not we even more? Because he was the apostle. He's the one that planted the church in Corinth. He says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. right? We've not taken material things from you for a spiritual service to you. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me by ground for boasting. And what Paul says this, he says, I'm, I'm going to go... And I'm going to go completely free of charge like the gospel is. I'm not going to demand anything. Okay? Which, it's okay, but Paul says in his circumstance, he didn't take money. Because there might be a way that it's an obstacle. You put an obstacle in someone's way. And, and particularly there with the Gentiles. I mean, you, you think about the Gentiles and how, oh, that guy's just talking because, right, we're filling his belly. And all sorts of attitudes and motifs and motives could be, could be put on people. And, oh, well, they're just charlatans. They're just saying that. They're just, they're just saying this because they want our money. But when Paul says, no, I've, I've not taken any of your money, then it's like, oh, we've got to weigh the, the truthfulness of this message. Is this, is this really true? Is, it, is the gospel really this, this free? And as they were picturing that. Now, it's not that even Paul was away from support because Paul was clearly supported by his friends when he was in Corinth. He was making tents by day and speaking by night. Or speaking by day and making tents by night. Kind of whatever 
whatever worked out there, however he was doing that. But when Silas and Timothy arrived, you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, they arrived, two guys did, and their work supported three. So Paul was freed up full-time for the sake of the gospel. Paul willingly took from these friends, but went out to the Gentiles and took nothing from them. And similarly, we have a heart of these people who going out to the Gentiles, accepting nothing from them, therefore... John says to Gaius, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth, right? We ought to help them, and in helping them, we become their, their fellow worker. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, that there's a partnership in the gospel when that takes place. And so I simply ask you, are you a servant of the saints? Particularly here, are you, are you demonstrating uh, your love by helping others? And particularly the application here, Though comes, right, those who are going out for the sake of the name, maybe missionaries. Are you helping financially missionaries? Do you give to many missionaries? Now, I would encourage you, to whom you give, be careful that you know them and you trust their work that they're doing and know the work that they're doing is good. Because not all money given to missionaries is, is well spent. Okay? But know who you have and take them and and encourage them and support them. And there's lots of ways to support them today. I mean, financially as some, when they come back to help them, to, to go, to do, it, do whatever you can, to support them in whatever way you can. And, and, and the good news is we, come, we become fellow workers of them for the truth. You may not be able to go, but if you're a fellow worker with them, you can work right alongside of them being a sending people. Or I think it was William Carey who said that uh, not all can go, but some can hold the rope. Now, are you holding the rope? Who are the missionaries you're supporting? I encourage you to support. If anything, I've encouraged you at Rock Valley Bible Church, be givers. Give. Give. Give to those who are going out for the sake of the name. Okay, that's Gaius. He was a servant to the saints. I was serving the saints. Second, Diotrephes. Diotrephes, verses 7 through 10. He's a guardian of the gate. He's a guardian of the gate. And that's not a good thing, all right? Gaius was a good example. Diotrephes was a bad example. Let's hear what John writes about in verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Now, apparently, Diotrephes was some sort of leader in the church, having the ability to put people out of the church. That's probably church discipline, probably one-man church discipline is what it is, right? The, uh, welcoming them with the big red boot of fellowship is, I think, what that's being talked about. You put them out of the church. His ways were all wrong. It's not a commendable thing, but it just shows he's got some authority to, to keep people out. Push them out and keep them out. And just going through verse 9 and 10, Diotrephes loved to be first. He liked to be first is what, what John says. I've written some things to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. It's what the Pharisees loved. They denounced, uh, Jesus denounced their incessant love for prominence. But they loved the big seats. Jesus said to them, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And I have no doubt 
Just with the, the Gentile distinction here, verse 7, that there's a Jewish predominantly congregation that Diotrephes learned his leadership style from the Pharisees themselves. And they led for show and for honor and for power. But as Jesus told us, that's not how true spiritual leadership is. Remember Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And Diotrephes was like the Gentiles, even though he learned it for the Jews. This is the way of the world who loved his authority over the church. He stops people in the church, verse 10. He kicks people out of the church, verse 10. And he thought that spiritual leadership was about exercising power and uh, control and not realizing spiritual leadership is about extending your love. It's not about exerting your power. It's extending your love and service towards those whom you lead. And that's the example of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's true spiritual leadership, his service. And Jesus, if anybody could have exerted his authority, but when you look at his broad life, what he did was he laid down his authority on his own initiative. He laid down his life, willingly dying upon the cross for our sins. And those who lead the church are called to do the same, to lay down our lives for those we, we lead. Parents, lead your children by laying down your lives. Bosses at work, lay down your authority for the sake of serving your workers. Make them great. Well, Diotrephes, not only does he like to be first, but he resists authority. In this case, Diotrephes resisted the authority of John. It says right there, right? I've written something in the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So maybe the letter was going to go to the church and Diotrephes said, oh, who's this? This is John. John has no authority. and took the letter and crumpled it up, perhaps. Never getting the church because he resisted the authority. He's the guardian of the gate, if you will. And John, of anybody, I mean, he was one of the apostles who knew Jesus during his ministry on earth. John was right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. John wrote the Gospel of John from an eyewitness testimony. John received a divine revelation, the vision of the future, which recorded in the book of Revelation. Paul called John a pillar of the church. But none of that mattered to Demetrius, or to Diotrephes, rather. He refused to acknowledge John's authority. But John would simply rather be known as the elder, the old man. He was willing to assert his authority. That's what verse 10 is about. It's about him asserting his authority. So if I do come... I'll bring up what he's doing. Like, like John kind of toughening up and says, you know what, this is, this is a matter of truth and error. This guy is causing harm to the church and I will bring rank and authority even though I'd rather, I'd rather lead by influence. I will come with rank and authority and will speak against this man. In fact, he says, if I come, I'll speak what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense about us. And that's how Diotrephes was resisting authority. Speaking badly of those who were respected in the church, right? Just tearing them down. Just ripping them down, saying how bad John was. Not like some politicians today. Just speaking bad about people. Now, we don't know if John ever came and this confrontation took place. I would have loved to see that. John coming in, probably a humble man, and putting this guy to to shame. We have no record of it in the Scripture. But if it did... 
I'm sure that what would have happened is this. Perhaps a church split would have happened. And John and Gaius and his disciples would go one way and Diotrephes and his followers would go another way because it's the way the nature of church conflict. Even the wicked will have their following. It's a sad lot, but they will follow Diotrephes instead. So John further puts forth his, his wickedness in verse 10. And not content with that, not content with just speaking nonsense against us, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. And here's what he stops ministry, verse 10. Agaius was, was welcoming the brothers and Diotrephes here was saying, no, no, you can't welcome them. They're not part of us. Get them out. They, they shouldn't be part of us. Instead, he, Diotrephes resisting this effort, which reflecting back then, you look at Gaius and his good deeds. Gaius was just doing what's right. He said, I know these, these guys are true and committed. Well, we need to take them in and we need to love them and we need to serve them. Even if this guy, this Diotrephes, powerful in the church, maybe threatening to kick Gaius out of the church, I don't even know, against that counsel, he still did the right thing. And that's where I get the main lesson about Diotrephes this morning. Diotrephes was a guardian of the gate. You know, there are leaders in the church who see their whole purpose of leadership, a standing guard at the gate of the church, making sure that nothing bad comes in. They want to keep all the bad out, and they only want to have the good in. Whether that's people, or whether it's doctrine, just protecting. They're, they're guardians of the gate. They're like the, you know, the, the, the guards at, at Buckingham Palace. Just kind of stand there, not letting anything pass, but which is good. They're going to keep all the bad out, all the rabble out. And therefore, when you have any kind of outside speaker, no, we can't have that happen. Or you have some kind of program, no, you can't have that going. And uh, oftentimes, um, and it, sometimes it may be commendable, like trying to protect the, the purity of the church. There's an aspect of that. But I just say this, as a leader in the church, there's nothing more frustrating than having a guardian of the gate and your leadership team. When it constantly stops all the ministry opportunities coming up, oh, can't have them because of this. Oh, can't have that person speak because of this. Oh, can't have that opportunity because of this. And, and you, just, you just get tired of that. I mean, one of the tasks of a leader is to stir things up and to, to get things going and to get things moving. I mean, I'm traveling to India to stir up missions in us. I mean, it's not a particularly pleasant trip. It's going to be a lot more pleasant this time because Yvonne's coming with me so we can have some shared memories together. But it's not a, a particularly pleasurable trip <clears throat> it's a hard trip i come back and i kind of get sick every time back just just pains and aches in my shoulder and and coming back but it is there's blessing to it but i'm doing it to stir up missions within us so we remember nepal we remember india we remember that there are brothers and sisters across the world that the church is bigger than the united states i meet with kids at kids club to stir things up to be with their parents to invite them we have vacation bible school and andy's stirring things up right even here this morning right stirring things up I want to support the crosses in that. They're stirring it up. I'm going to support that. And right, made no, I make known opportunities to you, right? Kids Hope USA, this opportunity for us, one hour each week to go in into the school. The school's inviting us to go in there. And I'm like, stirring this up. Let's, let's go there. Or even there was an opportunity to host some Chinese um, students recently, some high school students from China for a week or two. I'm just trying to stir them up. I'm trying to put good resources in your hand. The weekly word and these articles or books that we give out periodically, just trying to stir you up. And then to have someone on the leadership team who tries to stop that, it's like tremendously, tremendously defeating. 
By God's grace, it's not Phil or Darren, okay? If anything, I'm just telling you, they're not, not Phil or Darren. I mean, if anything, they allow me to run, and they say I'm not running fast enough, and they say, keep going, Steve. Um, very, I, I love you guys, very helpful and encouraging to, to that. Uh, whenever they have stopped me, I know that it's because they're being Jethro in my life, who was telling Moses, you're going to wear yourself out if you do all this. Appoint some, some structures in place so that they can judge and I know that's, that's like that. Well, I would say for you that what's applicable in the leadership can also be applicable for people as well. You, you can act and behave in such a way that you may not be an official keeper of the gate in official elders meetings, but you sure can be a, a keeper in the gate by the things you talk and spread and even Demetri- or, uh, di- uh, Diotrephes here and you speak wicked things against it. Oh, that's bad. We can't do that. And you can be vocal about that, right? You, you can be talking bad about, oh, we can't do that because of this. And you can just, you can spread insurrection even in the church not being a leader. And you can be your own guardian of the gate. Self-appointed. Right? You can uh, be a guardian of the gate when you right, discourage things. Or when you aren't involved or you don't support things as well. And I, I just say this, you want to not be a guardian of the gate, be an encourager and be a helper. Or you just, just think about, right, when opportunities come up at church, or you think, now there is capacity. I mean, we can't do everything, right? We can't save the world right here. We can do our little little part. Um, but you should, as things come up at church, are you speaking it down or are you seeking to encourage? And one of the things against diatrophies is that he was so protecting just our, our little church. This is what we got that he was discouraging everybody in the process. And I said, don't be like that. In fact, the principle, like I said, of Third John is verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil. And I think he's going right back to Diotrephes. Don't imitate that. Don't be the guardian of the gate. But imitate good. Be like Gaius, is what he's saying. Serve others and help others. Whoever does good is from God. Gaius is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Diotrephes' testimony is he's not even seen God. He doesn't know God. He's trying to so protect things, but he's missed what the gospel means, is to be open and serving and, and loving. Verse 11 really is the, the transition, and we transition simply to Demetrius in verse 12. I'll read it, and we'll see how nothing we get from it. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So you, you look here and you try to dig, okay, Demetrius, he's got his good testimony. That is, okay, Demi, third point, Demetrius, a testimony of the good. But you look down here and you start trying to dig and you start saying, okay, so what did Demetrius do? For Gaius, we know that he, he received these people, these brothers in, and they were strangers, and he, he helped them, and they testified his love towards him. Demetrius, we look at that, and all we see is that he's got a testimony a good testimony from everyone. And the truth itself testifies to that. And we add our testimony. So John knows about Demetrius. And you know that our testimony is true. So everyone's testifying about how good Demetrius is. It's a good testimony. But they all knew what Demetrius was about. But we know nothing about what Demetrius was about. And so what's good about that, I love. This is, this is sometimes in the Psalms when the Psalms don't tell you the situation behind David, why he wrote it, or someone when they wrote it, what it means is then it's applicable to many situations, not just to a specific one. So I, I just say this. Are you Demetrius? 
Do you have a good testimony? When people think of you, do they have a good testimony about you? Does the truth testify of you? Can others add their testimony to it? Does everybody know about your testimony? That's Demetrius. Now it's not, the testimony isn't that he's, oh, look at all the good I'm doing. I think he's just plodding along, just doing his good, but everyone kind of sees and notices, but he's not, he's not working doing good because people are noticing. He's just doing his thing. And people are seeing that and can testify to that. And I just say, when, so, so think in your mind, when people think of Steve Brandon, do I have a good testimony? When people think of, insert your name, do I have a good testimony? Is my life such that the, the truth is being lived out? When people look at me, do people, do people have this good testimony about me or not? And as Paul, as John says here in 3 John 11, right? let's imitate the good. Let's be a good testimony. It's simply a call here this morning to, to live out the truth of the gospel. So when your name is mentioned, there is a, a good testimony. Well, there's the tale of three men. Two of them, I believe, received a well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And one of them did not. And I pray for us at Rock Valley Bible Church that we all might hear those words. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray to that end. Oh, Father, I pray that we would indeed... God, imitate the good and that we would shun the evil, that we would not imitate the evil. I pray that we as a church family would be God, those who are like Gaius, serving and helping, lifting along however we can to whatever extent our capacity is, whether that's in our homes, whether that's in our relationships here at the church, whether that's at work in our neighborhoods. God, may we just be known as people who who serve in love, who die to ourselves, not be like diatrophies, having to be first, having to stand on the pedestal, having to make all the decisions, having to protect everything. God, but may we simply be those who, who come by and encourage and strengthen and, and serve you faithfully. God, may your truth work in us that everything we do is an overflow of that. God, be gracious to us and, and help us in these things. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.